And if you've got a Bible, we're going to read Joshua 6 to begin our time together. Uh, Joshua 6, verses 1 through 16 is going to be our text. Uh, if you've uh, followed along, we've been kind of working through a brief overview of the life of Moses and Joshua. We spent one week talking about that posture that Moses had before God when all of a sudden his plans changed and things went dark and things got uncertain. What did he do? He went to the mountain of God. He fasted. He prayed. He was in the uh, uncertainty for 40 days and 40 nights, yet he found a, a, a presence there that changed his life. He trembled before God, not asking for answers, not asking for certainty, but just relying on God. Of course, he rose up from there and he led the nation through the wilderness, and then he would turn the reins over to Joshua. We introduced to Joshua last week. Tonight, or today, we're going to read one of the most, or probably the most famous story that Joshua is known for. So let's read Joshua 6, 1 through 16, and then we'll talk about his role as the leader of Israel in this time. Now Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out, and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king and the mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all men of war. You shall go all around the city once. This you shall do for six days. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the covenant. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall come to pass when you make a long blast with the ram's horn and when you hear the sound of the trumpet that all the people shall shout with a great shout and the wall of the city will fall flat and the people shall go up every man straight before him. And Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Proceed and march around the city. Let him who is armed advance before the ark of the Lord. So it was when Joshua had spoken to the people that the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord advanced and blew the trumpets, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord followed them. The armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard came after the ark while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. Now Joshua had commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout or make any noise with your voice, nor shall a word proceed out of your mouth, until the day I say to you, Shout, then you shall shout. So he had the ark of the Lord circle the city, going around it once, and they came to the camp and lodged in the camp. And Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. Then seven priests, bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord, went on continually and blew the trumpets. And the armed men went before them, but the rear guard came up after the ark of the Lord, while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp, so they did this six days." But it came to pass on the seventh day. They rose up early about the dawning of the day and marched around the city seven times in the same manner. On that day, only they marched around the city seven times. And the seventh time it happened, when the priests blew the trumpets that Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. I want you to imagine you spent most of your life, uh, you, your entire adult life, looking up, to one person for everything you could ask for or need. Maybe this is a parent. Maybe this is uh, just some figure in your life. Uh, but can ima imagine you, you, this has been your life, childhood to adulthood and on. 
you've never had to worry, you never had to wonder what your next step would be, where your next handful of provision would come from. Maybe you've experienced this, maybe this is your story, you know this kind of luxury where you could always point to and look to and come to somebody for all that you needed. Maybe this isn't your story and the thought of it is just too good to be true, but entertaining it causes you to get lost in what could have been for you in a different time. Even in our world where we have so much and we are so blessed, life is still hard and life is still overwhelming at times. And the thought, the knowledge of having somebody to lean on and follow, I don't know about you, but that's deeply comforting, isn't it? But imagine being in a world where the blessings were few and the knowns were so little or to none. Imagine being in the middle of the desert, in the wilderness, as refugees of an evil, now fallen empire, there's nowhere to go back to, trekking along aimlessly through the desert, hoping to arrive at your ancestors' homeland. Imagine you have no map, you have no knowledge, all you have is a leader who, have this, who has this mystical connection to God, the only one who has this connection, by the way. All you have is this leader who has this relationship with the God of your people. Now, I know it sounds abstract, but you had witnessed miracles against this evil empire that set your people free. You crossed a body of water that you shouldn't have. You survived a third of the trip uh, and arrived at a mountain where you saw things you don't even know if you can repeat. All because your leader met face to face and walked hand with hand with this God. God proved his name and his nature with provisions of food and water where there would have been and should have been none. He spoke and the ground shook for all to feel. Upon your leader's intercession, he saved you from the plague. From, he set a pillar of fire in the night sky to guide you. He put clouds in the day sky to guide you. You'd witness all of that and you were at ease. Even though there was a lot that could go wrong. And even though there was a lot of, around you that was distracting you, your leader just made you feel like everything was going to be okay. Can you imagine that for not just a year, but 10, 20, 30, 40 years, a lifetime? You were so confident and so resilient because your leader was so confident and reliable. And isn't it true that leaders instill confidence? Parents, teachers, Pastors, anybody that's a leader and that has had a relationship with you that you begin to trust them and they do so well. Leaders instill confidence. Leaders instill resilience. Good leaders, at least. But here's the secret to good leadership. Good leaders that instill confidence and resilience are not perfect. They are not bulletproof. They stumble and they fumble the ball plenty. What makes them good is not their, is not their ability, is not their perfection, but it's their strength and their courage that doesn't waver. It's not that good leaders never encounter challenges. No, no, they simply have the courage and strength to embrace, endure whatever challenge. And when these challenges come, and they come, they don't lie or pretend that things are going to be just fine or go without any conflict. No, they are honest. And under good leaders, uncertainty often can seem unconcerning. Under the right leader of a nation, of a household, of a, of a church, or any other situation you may find yourself in, under the right leader, under a good leader, uncertainty can become unconcerning because good leaders are able to add clarity and bring clarity to foggy circumstances. And they do it like this. They say or they lead in ways that say, we don't know what will happen, but we know what we can do until it happens. We don't know when we'll have certainty about all the things that seem to be shaken and fragile right now, but until we do, and even if we never do, 
we can have clarity about who we should be and what we should do right now. Good leaders see uncertainty as an opportunity to tune people into an ever-certain reality. God is bigger than our questions. Not that your questions aren't important, not that your questions aren't valid or legitimate. They definitely are. But let's remember, God is bigger. And God is more present. God is present even in and especially in these unprecedented times. Good leaders, even if they don't have it together, even if they are on the ragged edge of losing control more than they'd like to admit, they never take into their hands what should be left in God's hands. Never trust a leader that says, I've got this or I can do it because they're lying to you. But more importantly, they have forgotten the secret to good leadership. Good leaders never take into their own hands what should be left into God's hands. They never allow their followers to reach for things that should remain in God's hands. They don't don't encourage followers to be like them. They encourage followers to rest in God and follow Him. But here's the thing. Sometimes leaders appear to do this so effortlessly, and we just think they're brilliant and able and in and of themselves just have it in them. Sometimes we as followers, because of our nature, we're so prone and really we want to put our faith in somebody, we will often overmeasure our leaders. Even if good leaders defer all the attention and accolades to God, we still build them up build them up past what is usually healthy. And it's not because they don't deserve appreciation or respect. It's just that good leaders are still just representatives and stand-ins for an even greater God. But after decades of following the same leader who is so smooth in leading and enabling and empowering you and your people, you would just begin to associate security and safety with them, wouldn't you? We do, all, we do this, don't we? Children do this, and that's what you want from a child for a parent, that they begin to think that as long as I've got them, everything's going to be okay. We associate security and stability and safety with the person that we can see. But if all of a sudden they are taken away, your confidence and your stability feels at risk, doesn't it? You've been here before, haven't you? All of a sudden everything's ripped away that you were leaning on, and now you're unstable. Now you're shaken. Now you wonder if there's going to be something to catch you. Now imagine if this is you, and you don't have America and the modern luxuries to fall back on, but you've got little to nothing to fall back on, actually, because you're living in a hand-to-mouth society. You would feel completely lost and helpless, wouldn't you? I would. And oh, by the way, it falls on you. Yes, you. It falls on you to take that leader's place and not miss a beat. What would you do? Uh, Of course, you're already feeling vulnerable, but now you and your fellow followers are, now all your fellow followers are feeling it, and it's multiplied throughout the nation. What do you do when all of a sudden God says, you're the one who's stepping into their shoes? Well, lucky for you, God has the perfect word for everyone in every situation, but he especially has a timely word for leaders. The reason being because he has called all of us, his message to his people is that we would lead well in this world. You may not feel like you're a leader, but every Christian, every child of God has been called to be a leader of some sort in your home, in your community, in some place that you work, in some place that you frequent. In a world where nothing is certain, we are all called to lead others to trust in God's certainty. In a world where it's easy to get distracted and discouraged, we are called to always add clarity to uncertainty, always emphasize there's plenty that we can do and someone we can be 
while we wait for things to change. Because everyone is looking for someone to follow. And if God's people don't fill this void and point to Him, there are a number of bad options ready to step up. Thousands of years ago, the people of God were in, had spent years in slavery and they were rushed into the wilderness and en route to a fabled promised land they heard about for years. Once in a generation, maybe even a millennia leader, led them out and revealed to them their origin and their destiny and their God. Moses, of course, is a household name. Everybody knows him for good reasons. Moses did the incredible thing as a leader. He never hid the truth from his people. That includes the challenges, the obstacles, the enemies they would often encounter. But his connection to God was so genuine and authentic. So when he spoke about God's presence, being with them no matter what, they believed him. Everyone knew Moses wouldn't be with them forever, but his death was so untimely. He died just as they were about to reach their destination. And let me just say, their destination wasn't a resort. It was a battlefield. It was their purpose and calling to take their land and establish a nation for God. It would be something they were not prepared for. It was all they could do to get through the desert alive. And now they were having to fight against organized and sophisticated nations. So you can imagine Moses, really, when God tagged Joshua as the next leader, he was feeling pretty helpless, pretty intimidated. Wouldn't you? For that reason, that's why Joshua 1 begins with God giving Joshua a pep talk, really this rally cry. And, and there's so much on the line, so many unknowns, yet God defines Joshua's calling, and he says those famous words, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid, for the Lord your God is with you. Take possession of what is yours. Joshua's time as leader would be different than Moses. Moses led the nation through the desert, but he would lead the nation into the promised land. Moses led them when they were wandering, but Joshua would lead them when they would be conquering. Big difference. The battles they, would fall, they fought in the desert were for hunger and thirst and survival, but the battles before Joshua would be different. Yeah, they had come through so much, but now the journey was coming to an end. Now the pressure was real. Now the mission was truly in motion. Now their real purpose was beginning. What they had prayed for and dreamed for was now a reality. You know, the funny thing about Christians, we love to pray for things and dream about things changing, but sometimes when things finally change, we aren't ready to step up and claim what we've been waiting for. You know why? Because often, what we've been praying for and what we've been waiting for involves a battle. And while we've been praying for and waiting for and expecting it, when we finally step on the precipice, when we finally have in front of us what we are meant to take possession of, we are frozen at the sight and the sound of the enemies of God who are waiting on us to keep us from being the people that we've been called to be. Because you can bet they are always ready to try to ruin an answered prayer. Something that you have been waiting for, something that God's Word has been preparing you for, they are ready to try to stop that from being a reality. But the question is for us. The question was for Joshua's generation. Were they confident enough in God's presence that they would be willing to step into the presence of their enemies? Were they willing to step under the shadow of armies powered by the enemy of God himself? 
so that God might shine brighter and expel darkness and change the world. Are you willing? Are you confident enough in God's presence to step into the presence of his enemies? If that's what it means. These enemies may, may be somebody. They may be something in your heart that's been taking over and been dominating you for too long. That may be something in your family, something in your life, something that surrounds you, external or internal, physical or emotional or mental. I don't know what it might be, but are you willing to step into the presence of your enemies and stare them in the eyes and know God is with me? It was on Joshua to lead them into doing just this. For years they had faced uncertainty. They found rest and comfort and certainty that God was with them. Would they now take that courage and let God lead them even if it was in the presence of their enemies? You see, the nations that conspired against Israel in years past now faced a reckoning. God gave them years and years to repent, but they did not. They refused to surrender, no doubt, with the influence from the enemy, from Satan himself. Knowing what God was about to start, the nation of Israel that would bring about the, the lineage of David, that would bring about the Savior of the world, Satan's men and Satan's armies were ready to prevent this from happening. So Israel faced a battle that I don't know if they really understood what it was actually uh, you know, really made of or what was really behind it. They would be truly on a mission that would take them to enemy ground, on enemy territory. But the battle they would fight would be a battle not with swords and not with spears. Even though that's the language they thought of when they heard battles. And that's the language we think of when we hear battles, isn't it? Add in a few dollar signs and the things, other things of this world. You see, God had trained His people to be aware of a greater battle at place. The New Testament tells us in 2 Corinthians, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. We don't win them with money. We don't win them with weapons. We don't win them with words of our own. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divine power to destroy strongholds of the enemy. Not that those of this world don't have agency. It's just that our goal isn't to win as the world counts success. Our goal is to spread the fame and renown of God. That's why God called Abraham. It's why he called Moses. So the world might know the one and only true and most high God. That has been his mission and our mission over humanity from the beginning. To glorify our creator. And in hindsight it makes so much sense. Because we face enemies every day. We face opposition and obstacles every day. And the only hope for us is to trust in God. And only hope for the world is to be rescued by God. And we who have been rescued, we who have been saved, we who have the presence of God with us always, we don't receive the gift to retreat or retire. We have been inspired, empowered, and emboldened. Even in the valley, even if the shadow of the enemy overwhelms us. That's where God has brought us. Listen, there are things in your life that you have ignored for too long that have had strongholds over you for too long. There are things in this world that have strongholds over our institutions that we may not ever change, but we can confront them with the only thing that's going to change or bring change. Y'all know this little verse? You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now, that's not really, a, that doesn't make me feel better. I'm just going to be honest. Can you not prepare a table for me away from my enemies? I mean, how about can you prepare a table for, before me above my enemies? 
I mean, we, Dave, we say this psalm, we say this first like it's a good thing. That's not a good thing. I don't feel like it is. But David is declaring that there's something about this reality that we can't ignore and we can't run away from because this is where God does His work. This defines the Christian's life maybe more than, we, than any other verse. We are saved, but we're in a fallen world. We're anointed in and for a broken world in the presence of our enemies, but we're filled with the presence of God. And that's, what God wants, that's why God wants to use us to make a difference because He can place us in the middle or redeem us out of the middle, right? Jericho was an already in-progress nation that God was going to place His people in the presence of. He was, you know, a table represents fellowship. That God was going to establish fellowship between man and woman and God in the presence of a world that was out of fellowship with God. He was going to reclaim and redeem. So when Joshua and the nation came, and came before Jericho, I imagine they had a lot of meetings. How are we going to do this? We don't have enough money. We don't have enough weapons. It's going to take us years and years of planning and preparing and getting strengthened and prepared for this. I mean, there's no way. And initially, they decided, you know what? We better send some spies into this city. Before they consulted God, before they prayed and said, God, what should we do? Before God intervened and said, this is what you should do, they had a meeting. Joshua sent spies into the land, into Jericho, and they initially came into the house of Rahab. Now, if you'll turn back to chapter 2, we'll just look at a few verses that really set them up for chapter 6. Now, Rahab, I don't want to go into too much detail, but she ran a risky and shady business. And, and these spies wanted to be unassuming, so they thought, well, where's the most unassuming place we can go? We'll just go to Rahab's house because everybody goes to Rahab's house. And they won't think we're any different. So they go to Rahab's house, they hide out in a basket on top of the roof, and they knew that Rahab, because of her reputation, she knew everything. She had the ear of most of the men in the city, especially the rich and the powerful. A lot of folks passed in and out of this place. So when Rahab figures out who these men were, rather than being indignant or rather than being angry or rather than sicken the spy or sicken the army on her, she protects them because she's afraid of them. She's speechless because she's heard of these men. She's heard many a man in her presence express great anxiety over these men and where they come from, over their entourage that was rolling through the desert. If you drop into Joshua chapter 2, verse number 8, verse number 9, she comes on the roof, and this is what she says. They don't ask any questions. They don't say, hey, let's explain. This is what she says to them before they even get to know each other. I know that the Lord has given you the land. Her land, their land, the people, the Jericho land. That the terror of, your, of you has fallen on us, and the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. And I think they're looking at each other thinking, us? I mean, y'all are like twice as tall as us. Y'all are twice as strong as us, rich as us. Why are y'all afraid of us? For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites that tried to meet them halfway... Uh, on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, who you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our heart melted, neither did they remain any courage in any one because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. And I think this is where they look at each other and thinking, we didn't expect this. 
I mean, she just confessed more about God than we would even confess about God. She doesn't even know our God, but apparently she does. I got some good news for you. Every demon and every enemy you face in your mind, in your heart, and in your flesh trembles before your God. I don't know what you battle. I don't know what's going on in your mind, in your heart, in your flesh. I don't know what goes on in front of you, around you, inside of you. But I know this. Every one of those demons and every one of Satan's imps, they tremble before God. Whatever is driven or being used by the enemy to combat you or belittle you or bully you, they are doing it for the same reason that kid bullied you in elementary school. I know how this goes. Because they know, just like he knew, they know that they all, all they have is talk and no bite. The best way to fight against them and to fight against him is not to fight fire with fire, not to succumb to the strategies of this world. We don't use revenge or hatred or jealousy or get fueled by competition, but rather show them and show him that your faith is not in him so as you, it requires his approval or his acceptance of you. Your faith is in God, and God is greater than him. And the God who has revealed that the enemy has a short time your faith is in Him. And that's why you can say to your enemies, that's why you can know about your enemies, they tremble before your God. And they bully you and they try to belittle you, but they know they don't have forever. The way you fight, the way you win, is by declaring the greater an ultimate victory of God over the enemy. Remind him that his attacks on us aren't going to change the bigger picture. He appears big and bad, but remind him about God, and he has to flee. You know, Moses taught the people a song before they crossed the Red Sea. This is so incredible. I hope you've heard about this before, but if you haven't, this is so big. Moses taught the people of Israel a song before they crossed the Red Sea. Before. So they're in a little camp, and they're, you know, Pharaoh's armies are three days away, and they know they've got two days to figure out how we're going to cross this water. And this is before God told Moses to hold the stick up. They're panicking. They're worried. Moses says, okay, God, God has given me a song. I, mean, I don't, this is crazy, but hey, what else are we going to do? There's water and there's an army. Which way are we going to go? We can't go anywhere. So let's just talk about this. Moses teaches them a song. He says, listen, God's going to deliver us. But God has told me that we need to learn this song so that when he delivers us, we can sing this song. So Moses teaches the people a song before they see the water part. So that when, they part, when the water parts, this is the song that they knew, so that they ha- if they sang it, they had to know it. They learned it, and they sang it. This is the song that he wrote ahead of time. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Before he threw him into the sea. Again, before. The Lord is my strength. He's my song. He's become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise him. My Father's God. I will exalt him. As in, this is going to happen. So I'm going to go ahead and praise him for it. I love this. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord, Yahweh, is his name. I am is his name. He's going to deliver us. So we're going to sing to him. 
Again, they learned this before they crossed, so Moses instilled this sort of confidence in them. He taught them to be a people of praise, a people who trusted in and believed in God's power. Moses taught them that while there, there would be plenty of seasons of uncertainty, they could always have clarity regarding one thing. God was with them so they should sing and praise Him. They could be certain that, he, that they were never alone. They were not lost to Him. They never could be. He fought their battles. He fights their battle. He fights for His own. So Moses impressed on his people this sense of, of understanding what seemed like a great enemy and obstacle proved to be a greater opportunity for God to exercise His power. And, and, and this is so amazing. Later on in the song, again, before it all happened, this is what the song says. The people have heard, they tremble, pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia, or Canaan. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed, trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. Is that not pretty much what Rahab said? That they were feeling toward God's people? What Moses said they would feel toward God's people? 40 years before they even met God's people. So Rahab entertained a lot of men. And here she heard from them the verses of a song that the people of God had been singing in the desert. And that song became so popular, and as they conquered traveling bands and tribes of marauders, they would sing this song, and that song got ahead of them, and in Canaan's land, the people heard of this confident marching band that was on their way with one weapon, and that was worship. And they trembled at the thought of meeting this people that was so confident in their God, they didn't even have to raise a sword. And here Joshua was, trembling at the thought of fighting this people, and they were already defeated. After the report came back, Joshua began talking to God about the battle strategy, and it, wouldn't, it shouldn't surprise any of us what God told him would be the winning move. They were to stick with what had brought them this far, what had made them famous, what continues to make God's people famous. They were to worship in the presence of their enemies just like we are to worship in the presence of our enemies so that as they marched around that city and played that trumpet song on the th on the last day on the seventh day they did more than just play the song they sang the song and that's when the walls fell down and exposed the enemy for what he really was a coward and a defeated Here's what we learn. Just because we find ourselves in uncomfortable circumstances, just because we find ourselves in enemy territory, we can't allow the shadow of the enemy to silence our song. We need to sing a little louder, even in, especially in, the presence of our enemies. Now, let me be clear. We don't sing to win. Even more arrogant than that. We sing because we've won. Do you hear me? 
We sing because we've already decided whether we ever make it through the walls, whether we ever make it over the mountain or across the sea, guess what? Whether I get there or get that or get them, I've still got him and he's still got me and that's how you spell victory. And listen, let me just say this. There is nothing greater, there is nothing that will change your life, nothing that will ever measure up to the gift of Jesus Christ in his death and his resurrection, what that will do for your life. There may be some people with a microphone that promise you stuff, money, possessions, riches, all the toys in the world. That stuff is not what you need. That stuff's not going to make a difference for you. But what will always make a difference, and what has always made a difference, is the presence of God in a life of a believer. It's the blood of Jesus and the Spirit of Jesus that anoints you every single day. Listen, think about what Joshua's generation had to lose. I don't want to underestimate, undermine your struggles or your challenges, but can I take liberty and say it'll never be as much as what they had on the line? They had their egos and reputation, of course. They were an upstart nation that had raised its, big, its fist against the big leagues, and they dared to take back what was theirs. If they lose, they die before they even get to be a free people, even before the nation gets to get started, but it was bigger than that. There were the future of God's presence on earth was on the line. Everything they had come after that would come after that. Israel, David, Jesus, the church, us, all of it was on the line. Yet it's so powerful and it can't be overlooked. They chose to praise before they got paid. Come on, this was not normal or natural for them. They had to learn how to do it. I think that's the reason they had to do it six days in a row because I think it took all week for everybody to get on board. They had to get on board and it took a while. They had to realize there was something to praise God for no matter what. They had to learn the joy that came from singing was better than any treasure that came out of Jericho. Nehemiah 8 tells us this, that we should not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is our strength. That joy comes from worship, and if we don't worship, we aren't strengthened. And if we go about fighting battles some other way, we not only lose the battles, but we get weaker. So we better start singing, shouldn't we? If we ever want to be strong and courageous in the face of this world, listen, this world has a vacuum turned on high, and it's doing its best to clean us out. And i got to address this before we're done. Gentlemen, Men, we have got to destigmatize praising God as a gender. We think we're so strong, but we're not. We think we don't need to sing, but we do. Men, our gender struggles with addiction, unchecked and unhinged emotions, carnal temptation and distraction far more than the other side, the better side of humanity. We are weak, weak, weak. And the only way we're going to get a strength that is lasting and impactful is by worshiping our God. Learning to use our minds, our mouth, and our words for more than just the other nonsense we use it for. And ladies, listen, y'all sing a lot better than us, so we need, you. we need your voice. I don't know what battles you face, but I've walked alongside many of you to know that the devil throws plenty at you. I know that us men and all that those that you care for and take care of bring a lot of anxiety and stress on you. I know this world tries to tell you that you're not perfect unless you look a certain way. The enemy tells you that you're not good enough even though you've poured yourself out for somebody, for everybody. Same goes for you, men. Listen, I if you don't learn, if we don't learn to prioritize worship, if we don't learn to fight our battles the right way, 
our enemy is not our relative that we can't please. Our enemy is not our coworker that we can't stand. Our enemy is not our neighbor that we don't agree with, not our leaders that we don't feel represented by. Our enemy is not that flawed image you see in the mirror. Our enemy is in chains in hell. He roars loud like a lion, but he has been defeated. He shows up when sin wrecks lives and breaks hearts, where death swallows another soul. He may roar in your head, but he can't live there. And he may whisper in your heart, but that's not his territory. The enemy still claims blood that falls on this world, but we, we proclaim the blood of Jesus' death and we proclaim the spirit of His resurrection that raises us up to even greater things. Amen. The enemy hates praise. He tries to stop it. He gets churches and Christians arguing about it more than they do. They actually do singing. Worship, though, is our weapon in this spiritual battle we wage every day. Worship breaks the power of oppression. It turns obstacles into opportunities for God to display His power. How many stories are there of God's people worshiping and miracles happening? Oh, but we're so sophisticated and we're so refined. It doesn't work that way anymore. And that's exactly why it doesn't work that way anymore because we don't believe it and we don't do it. Think about Paul and Silas in prison. How many prisons are we in in our hearts that God could break the walls down if we would just sing? Think about those three Hebrews in the fire. When the devil turned his music up, they wouldn't dance, but they would only worship to God. And they threw them in the fire, but God showed up in the fire with them. Think about Jehoshaphat when he was trembling on a battlefield. He remembered Joshua and the trumpets of Jericho and told his man, lay your weapons down and pick up a trumpet. Worship still confuses and confounds the enemy. Now more than ever, we need to lift up our voices because it's our only means of surviving on this battlefield. The other day, I stood at a graveside for, with Miss Geneva's family. And I don't know, I hadn't been in a funeral all year and all because of COVID and all that stuff. I haven't, things haven't been normal and you know, obviously you don't want to go to funerals, but I was glad to be there with the family. But I stood back to the side and I looked around at all those tombstones. All that death. I thought about all that COVID has done and all that has brought all the suffering in our world today. In the skies, they grew darker and the rain started to fall. And I thought, this is what it's like to be in the presence of the enemy. I was thinking about this year and all that we face, all the brokenness. And I literally felt surrounded by the forces of hell. And it might have just all been in my head, but that's what I felt like. I was on the enemy's territory where death reigned and reminds everyone how powerful he is. I've got to be honest, I, I was just overwhelmed by this. And then I heard the words of how great thou art as it was being sung. And in that moment, this might have been in my head, I don't know, but all that darkness and all that despair began to tremble and I began to tremble with it. But whereas all that darkness went back to hell, I looked up and saw the light of heaven. And I realized that there in that graveyard, enemy territory, became holy ground. Amen. Because where worship confronts the enemy and reminds him of his defeat, we see the bigger picture. Church, we don't have to worry about stepping into the presence of the enemy. We sit in and live in a world that is full of the enemy, okay? We are also, though, in the presence of God. 
And the blood of Jesus' cross and the spirit of His resurrection, they wash and anoint us every single day. We don't know what's going to happen next. But i got to ask you a question. Are you willing to sing in the presence of your enemies so that God's victorious power might be known? Listen, the Christian hope and faith is, has always been that every obstacle, disease, battlefields, broken homes, bruised hearts, every Roman cross and every sealed tomb is an opportunity for God to display His power. So let's sing a little louder. Let's remind the world that greater is He that is with us and for us than whoever or whatever wants to destroy us. And believe me, there's plenty that is going to try to destroy every one of us. Here, here, and all around us. But if we just sing a little louder, the enemy knows. But do we know? Maybe we can learn that today. Lindsay's got a really cool, really awesome song for us. Listen to the words of this song. If you have a need, the altar's going to be open for you. Let's lift up our hearts. Let's lift up our voices. Let's sing a little louder in the presence of our enemies and remind them that God is greater, that God is with us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to be in your house tonight. Thank, today, thank you for being with us. Thank you for reminding us that we are not alone and that no matter what we may feel like is surrounding us right now, greater is he that is within us and greater is he that is around us. Father, help us to lift up our voices like they did in Joshua's generation. Help us not to go against Jericho with weapons of this world, but to go against Jericho with the song of the Lord. That we've been given victory and that nothing can defeat Jesus. That he has defeated every one of our foes. And that's why we sing and we'll always sing. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.